This is Beyond the Bell Tower, where an elite group of North Carolina State University students give us a behind-the-scenes look at their steps to success and show us how they attain even their lofty goals. These students, who are in the top 10% of the country, are active in student support services at NC State, a nationally recognized program designed to provide support for low-income, first-generation college students. Nationally, this population has an 11% graduation rate within six years. The student support services students surpass that rate each year and go on to become doctors, dentists, accountants, and engineers. They work at Google, Apple, and the NCAA. They have earned PhDs in Ivy League colleges. These students go well beyond the bell tower to reach this level of success. So, Dr. Jones, we, I figured it out, we met in January of 1993. You gotta be kidding. Were you 45? You're probably 35 at that time. No, I probably looked like I was 55, but that is amazing, Sarah. So that means I always think you're one of my kids, but you really are old. You're old. What are you, 40? You're 40? Um, 48. Yeah. You're 48. You gotta be kidding. I just have one of my students I met who is 50. I thought to myself, do you imagine having a and I got two kids work for me now, two teenagers, college kids, and they said, they said, Well, my dad met Dr. Jones because he was one of Dr. Jones' students. And uh, that's how they got connected. I think thought to myself, these are college kids working full time, and their dad was one of my students. I said, Wow. Mm-hmm. They could have said I was in elementary school and high school. They are actually, yeah. So I'm getting, I'm getting old, buddy. Yeah. Well, I'm sure you'll have a third generation too working for well, you. I, I hope so. Maybe some of your kids. Hey, now that was one of your kids that with the writing program. Oh yes, yes, okay. yes, yes, yes. Yep. Right. Rachel. Good. I was happy yep. to do that. No, great. Thank you. It means a lot. So, yes. Yeah, so we met. So this is Dr. Dennis Floyd Jones. Your full name. I was forget because I never Floyd Dennis. Anyways. We, um, I asked you to have this podcast because you had sent a video to me a couple of weeks ago. And after I listened to it, there was just so much to it where I was like this, I want to talk more about this with you. And I just think it was like such an important story. And I'm glad that you agreed to do that for sure. Thank you. Um, and why I wanted to do that is that you've been my number one mentor since 1993 and What I think is important to know, too, is that we met at West Virginia University when you were a faculty member. Then you hired me that summer to work at the summer program, which we can talk a little bit more about that, too. But um, in that summer, then my father died. And that, I think, made the difference between you as a mentor and other people, faculty members that I had at West Virginia, as that there was, you responded very personally. And I always knew I could go to you for whatever that may be. And so I appreciate that. And I think that that's one of the things as why I wanted to have this conversation with you is I knew that you would be open to having a a really powerful conversation. Thank you. So, so what was that speech for? The speech, you know, at my age, believe it or not, I enrolled in a leadership program. It was actually 
a competitive program you had to apply for, get sponsors or folks to write letters. And you were selected. I was one of 60 professionals who live in and around the Pittsburgh region to get selected in a 10-month leadership program. And, you know, the basic focus of the program, to be honest with you, is not necessarily teaching leadership theory, but it's more teaching you how to use your leadership ability to grasp the region's biggest problems and how those problems can, you can use your skill set to address those problems. And a lot of people in the program, to be honest with you, they were thinking about this more as a way to advance their own careers and futures based upon this as a part of their resume, graduate of the Leadership Pittsburgh. But for me in a nonprofit area, it was just like throwing a duck in water. I had the most fun. You know, we had superintendents from the school districts that I've been trying to get into for years. We had we had corporations. I've been calling them and wanting them to, you know, be on my board or whatever. And I just absolutely loved every minute of that. It was it was the most fun I've had in my entire career. Because, you know, everybody was nervous. You know, you always have the imposter syndrome. Should I be here? Am I good enough? So what I did real quickly is that I, when I got the applications uh, from everybody who, who was accepted, I went through the list of 63, analyzing what colleges to go to. You know, you're married, you got kids, who are your kids, where your kids go to school. I looked at your job, what you do, who you work with. And then, so whenever we went to our first meeting, it was the most amazing thing because they had you pitch with as well. The, our very first meeting, I went up to them and said, oh, you are so-and-so. How are you? How are your kids? Whatever. Oh, you're so-and-so. Their eyes popped out. I, I was able to, to introduce myself and then tell them about themselves. And that just started off like an immediate bond because people, believe it or not, they wanted to come into there and fit. They want to come in there and make friends and build relationships, networks. And a lot of people, to be honest with you, Sarah, they're not very good at that. If it's a business area where they they understand we're, we're business people, we can kind of, you know, do the what we call the, the small talk. You know, how's your golf get? How's your golf game? Look at the weather, that kind of stuff. But, you know, because I've had a whole career of working with students and teachers and interacting in, in those academic and public environments, I was able to really use this as a laboratory, if you will, to build my own set of networks because I've been away from Pittsburgh, you know, teaching for 32 years. And it's a it's a city that I was in, but it was a city I didn't know very many people. And so I was able to do that. And, and that's and so the program went along. And of course, you know, we had a lot of interactions with, for example, we went we went to juvenile court. And I'll tell you two quick stories. We went into one. Well, uh, let me pause for a second, because I did look at that leadership program mm-hmm. and their alumni, like they're the top 30 of 30. They're the top 100, you know, of who's who in that Pittsburgh area. It listed like all these people of these major corporations. So you're right. I mean, like the, the, the pond that you were in were like the cream of the crop, people who had either real power or social power or financial power. It really was. So I went into the meeting, though, we, we had with uh, the courts. All of a sudden, there was a judge of a common police court. She was one of the persons who helped us with our diversion program along the way. So she's up there addressing me personally. And everybody's looking around. How do you how, do, how does she know you? 
I said, no, I didn't come before as a, as a, you know, I'm not a criminal. She would know, you know what I mean? It's like, what are you doing back in my court? I didn't ask you here last week. No, nope, it wasn't that. Then, uh, you know, we just had the summit and we went into the federal building. The federal building. The we you're talking about is yes, the nonprofit that you run. But I went in there with yeah. my, uh, with my leadership Pittsburgh cohort. And so yeah. we were in there and United States attorney gets up in front of all the people and she says, well, you know what? I'm really happy to be here because we have a lot of individuals that are active in supporting our region as it relates to these, some of these issues. And we have in our room, Dr. Floyd Jones, who works with Youth Empowerment Services. Of course, I knew she meant Youth Enrichment Services, but she called me out in front of all these people. Everywhere we went, because of some of the programs that we've done and some of the people that we've had in our program, you know, we were able to immediately get people to give me some respect because of how often my name kept coming up in with all these these folks. So that that gave me a big in, Sarah, with our group. And so as time went on, uh, you know, they said, okay, at the end of the program, we're going to have uh, one person be the keynote speaker for our commencement. And it was a secret ballot, secret vote. But I was I was uh, called about a week before the vote, and they said, you know, no, when the vote had started, they said that some people kept calling and said, I want you to know we voted for you. I want you to know we voted for you. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you know, and they said, I think I, I think you're going to win because everybody I talked to, they said they're voting for you. And it was really true. But this is the real kicker. This is the real kicker. It was about 75% through the program, maybe 80%. Guess what I did? I wrote my speech for my commencement speech. Oh, you did it before it even ended. Exactly. I, I did it before it was even announced that, okay. that who was going to win. And I didn't tell any, I didn't tell anybody. And I, and I did that because, you know, that's one thing when you reach my level of professional, you know, I'm, I'm old, I'm old, you know what I mean? So you can read, you can read things like that. Do you know what I mean? I, I knew mm-hmm. that I was going to be the speaker because I was able to demonstrate over and above all the other folks in there that I had the years of experience, mm-hmm. the teaching ability to command a room and to discuss things intellectually. I was able to feel, I mean, I, I didn't have any fear. A lot of those people are still young in their career. Am I going to look stupid when I say something? Um, are people going to yeah. take me seriously? How, how do I, how do I, you know, not look dumb in, in, in this environment? Mm-hmm. When you get to be the, mm-hmm. to be my age, all those things become irrelevant. You know what I mean? You, you know, you begin mm-hmm. to focus on the real substance. And it, it, it takes age to really understand that, that in those environments, the best thing you do, the best thing you do is to be your authentic self and to be the kind of person that you know is needed at the time, not the kind of person that you think you want people to see. And that's a big difference. And that goes back a lot to how we started Yes. Understanding after the very first year, remember how we wrestled with that so much? Because you were in that cohort of people in Fairmont after the third year, where we were trying to find out what is it to do to motivate these kids? Is it to look at their self-esteem, look at their self-concept, look at their locus of control? And that's the first year when we did it in Fairmont where we were looking at their locus of control because we realized after the first year in in Charleston that people 
self-esteem is a, an external variable. It's, it's, it's external to you. You don't control that. You don't control if people like your new hair. You don't control if people like your outfit, mm-hmm. like your glasses. If people like that you lost weight. People like that, oh, I love that smile. Oh, that's a nice car you have. Oh, you have a nice big house. All of those things build people's self-esteem. They're all external to you. But you know what? At the same time, it brings your self-esteem down because some people say, oh, my goodness, look at your bald head. I hate bald men. You know what I mean? And so automatically, there's your self-esteem gone down the pooper. Or you, you, you go out and you buy a car and somebody says, you bought that cheap car, man? What are you doing around that cheap piece of junk for? You know what I mean? So all the things that bring you up can also bring you down. And so that's one of the things that when you're in those environments, like I was in, you have to kind of make a choice. Do you want to do things to get the external good, good, good out of boys? Or do you want to do the things that are meaningful, that are relevant, and that are important, that are not popular, that are not necessarily what everybody wants to hear? And that's what I was able to do during the whole semester, be that person that asked the tough questions when people in a room were afraid to, to be able to interact in a way that allows you to be vulnerable when other people didn't want to. For example, uh, you won't believe this. You know, we had uh, three kids die in our program this year, get shot and died. Yes. We went to the legislature. We visited Harrisburg. I'm up in front of all the legislatures. And I'm telling you, they were up there talking about, well, you know, we got to make sure we put money in there for voter security. We got to make sure we put money in whatever. I listened to as much as as I could. And I said, do you understand that people are dying? These kids, you know how many funerals I go to? How many kids are just absolutely in, in, in the worst shape? And you're up here talking about you want to do something with, with voter registration? I said, you, you know, you need to get past that. You need to get over that. And and when I was talking, I actually started crying. And it was, it was I know it was really bad. It was really bad. I felt so bad. But you know what? When it, after it, everybody came up and said, you know what? We wish we could have said that. We wish we had the nerve to tell them what you said because everybody in the room was feeling the same way. You know, why are you coming here? You know, it was a conservative kind of person who was running running it. And they said, you know, why are you here telling us when we're actually parents of kids who could have our kids shot up in school? We're, we're grandparents of kids who play in these environments that are not necessarily under our control where we don't know who's around them. And we live, we drive through neighborhoods where a lot of these kind of families live. So for you to get up here and talk about these things that are just irrelevant and, and we have kids dying, you know, we're glad you spoke up, Floyd. We cheer you on and we would have probably cried too, but that's a long answer to your short question. Yeah. <laughs> no, because the thing I think that's one of the pieces of it is that you understood, like just even you talking about how you approach the leadership program of, I know stalking is a strong word, researching the people that were going to be, you know, so that you knew, so you knew the power of the relationships. And then because you had developed relationships with those other people, then that benefited you too, more than probably see anything else on your resume, Mm -hmm. you know, of getting that respect and clout. It's like, of like who you are as a person, the people, you know, is that true? Like, do you view that? Yes, I do. And I think you have one of the strongest student rapports with every, I mean, you always, like there's a long list of your former students that are dedicated. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? And I just look at that sometimes, Sarah, and I, I'm in awe of that. I'm in awe of that because if you think about it, 
there is a real distance between what I call the idea of having students that are, don't look like you. Think about that. You know, 90% of the students I taught were not my own race. They were, they were white primarily. And a lot of them, because it was sports and athletics, were male. And a lot of them were white females. And so, and a lot of them came from environments where they're not necessarily friendly you know I mean, to, to diverse groups. So the idea of having, uh, you know, a group of students uh, that come from those Western parts of the state of uh, Maryland and, you know, Ohio, Steubenville and those cultural areas where they said in one previous election, they cling to God and their guns. You know what I mean? So, you know, but to go into those environments and to build the student rapport and, and the students and you know what? Some of my students who challenged me the most, who challenged me the most, now are some of the best friends I have. And that, to me, is, is, is one of the best legacies that I have, to know that this kid came to class where they literally couldn't stand the thought of me. But as they either before the class went over with or two or three years later, they called me up and said, you know, Dr. Jones, you were right. <laughs> and you know what? Yeah. I, I have so many of those. And you know what the funny thing about it is? Some of those turned in the worst evaluations of me. I had to go and explain to the dean why I kept getting such bad evaluations from a small group of people. But I kept on, but I kept telling him, you know, when you run into people that are a part of that environment that are not necessarily have ever had a black professor in their whole career, they never had a black person be in charge of anything that they do. Their parents have kind of sheltered them from, from that side of the of the equation and then to be in an environment where you see, you see that uh, and you're able to say to yourself well wait a minute do we have to follow that script do we have to allow you as a student to feel comfortable just so you don't you know piss off your parents or that you 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 don't do things that that make you know the, the kid look bad now of course there's some reasons I was CRT and some of those things I used to teach critical race theory I taught it every semester. And it was so surprising to me how well the students understood it and how well that science is embedded in our culture and our in our larger society, which which always made me question the real, you know, purpose for people to attack that. Because obviously yeah. they want to how you inoculate yourself. If you if you call it fake before anybody looks at it, then you've already inoculated yourself to people. So, well, so-and-so said it's fake. Well, you didn't even look at it. You didn't even think anything about it. But, you know, they're able to, you know, have that kind of a voice. So that is one of the reasons why I think I've been able to have as many students who, who keep up with me and who are really some of my best friends because of the fact that I was honest, open, caring, kind, considerate. And no matter how tough I was, if they earned an A or they had close to an A, they'd get that grade. I always yeah. showed them that it wasn't personal. It wasn't personal. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna go and jack your grade up because you disagree with me or you gave me a bad bad evaluation. And I'm telling you, the kids that gave me bad evaluations who came back later and apologized, they had tears in their eyes. They said, "You know what? I really. I mean, one person actually said, I need to retire.' They said, "You need to retire.'" And, you know, she saw my 
Facebook right now. She was on my Zoom when I left. And she said, you know, Dr. Jones, I wrote a two-page letter to the dean about you. And everything I wrote in it was absolutely wrong. Because she had me the next semester in another class. And as time went on, she was able to, to see. You know, but the other thing, too, is a lot of these kids asked me for that as a recommendation. And, you know, they're out. I had a kid right now. Think about it. Can you imagine a kid that graduated in 2012? 2012, writing, asking me for a letter of recommendation. He's going into grad school. I have kids who've graduated years past. I mean, one kid who left WVU as a junior to go to play at at Northwestern. He wrote me just recently, need a letter of reference for a job that he's getting. I thought to myself, wait a minute. All the professors you had and all you guys can do is just write me and ask me letters of recommendation. And the thing about this too, the other thing, I have a lot of students who ask me for letters of recommendation who I know trash me in front of the dean and everybody. You know what I mean? But I still give them good letters of recommendation because, like I said, I don't make it personal. I focus I focus on the quality and, and, and on them. Yeah, no, I think this is a good segue. So I'm going to play that speech here. Good afternoon, my fellow classmates, colleagues, friends, family members, brothers, and sisters. We made it. On behalf of each of you, I'm extending our sincere love and appreciation to Aradna, Shauna, Stacy, Chrissy, Sarah, and Jasmine. Each of you have earned our sincere thanks. We could never have done this without you. To all the family members here today, I also want to extend to you our most sincere gratitude for allowing your family to get out of some of those, you know, those family chores, those duties around the house, and other responsibilities so that they can complete this leadership program. We owe you. To our sponsors, stakeholders, funders, we want you to know we've met the standard and we have exceeded the high bar you place before us. I have three brief constructs I want to share with you this afternoon. However, before I do that, I want to begin by telling you a quick story titled An Improbable Journey. Picture, if you will, a young fellow born one year after the 1954 Brown versus Board of Education Supreme Court decision that struck down the notion of separate but equal. The lad lived on a mountain in rural southern West Virginia. Now, flash flooding occurred on occasion down in the valley. One morning, three of his siblings drowned on the way to school in one of those flash floods because a school bus driver failed to send a boat to take the kids across the flooded bridge. As the news of the tragedy reached the school, rather than show concern and grief, the students cheered and they clapped, saying, we didn't want those niggers here anyway. Now these feelings were amplified when the idea of a search party was brought up and they tried to recruit people. Not one of the persons in that school or that town volunteered to participate to find those young bodies. You know, as terrible as that tragedy was, it does not compare, nor does it capture all the threats to access, equity, opportunity this young lad had to endure growing up in the post-segregation era. Throughout his life, this young lad could have become evil or angry 
or given up altogether. However, he was able to persevere through the hatred and discrimination, not primarily because of the support of his families, his parents, school teachers, coaches, church leaders. And as you may have figured out, and I'm sure some of you have, that that lad is me. So in a sense, you could say, I have been preparing for this moment my entire life. And I am so darn proud I can share this moment with you. To be recognized by my peers with this special gift is something I would cherish for the rest of my life. Okay, my first construct. Be your authentic and genuine self in all of your actions and endeavors. Never settle. Never give up. Never give in. Never compromise your basic values of fairness, kindness, and care. For one day, you will reach my age after a long career, and all you'll have left is that picture of that person you see in the mirror every morning and every night. If you have remained true to yourself, that person can be of great comfort. That person you see in the mirror can be a true friend. But if you have swayed from your authentic self, that figure can torment you until you draw your last breath. So be yourself. Be authentic. Be genuine. And yes, be extraordinary. Next, stretch. Stretch your global footprint. Stretch what is inside your world. For those of you, my brothers and sisters, who are fair-skinned and born with privilege, recognize this gift and acknowledge the privilege you have been given. Don't spike the ball. And don't gloat. Rather, with humility, stretch your gift and utilize it to benefit those less fortunate. Continue to be extraordinary by showing your compassion, your honor, and your willingness to share your bounty. And now for my brothers and sisters who are not necessarily born into the same privilege, remain open, remain honest, and be patient. Find your common bond with humanity. Find your common language with those you associate with. Be strong and push those individuals around you to be part of the collective. Join them, understanding that there is beauty in the mosaic of life's tapestry. Much like we see in this room, a reflection of America. Continue to be extraordinary in all that you do to connect others, regardless of their heritage or hue. Finally, my brothers and sisters, live. Live. Live every day to the fullest. Reach for the most common and ordinary objects and make them extraordinary. As one of my favorite sports psychologists says, the path is the goal. Believe me when I say your happiest moments 
are now. Your most exhilarating experiences happen on the smallest stages every single day of your life. You must stop waiting for someone or something to make you happy. Live for the day. Be optimistic and be energized and be ready to accept each challenge and opportunity. For it is through those problems, opportunities, and challenges that your best self will emerge. It always does. So be authentic. Stretch yourself to benefit those around you and live every day to the fullest. Thank you, and God bless each of you. The path is the goal. Remember, it is a journey. Be extraordinary. Continue to inspire, continue to lead, and continue to change the world one day at a time. LP38, the best damn class ever. Thank you. Had you heard that? Had you listened to it yourself? Yeah, I've listened to it several times. Yeah, 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 yeah. What do you think? Um, what's your response to it after hearing it? Well, for a couple, of you know, like I said, I wrote it, you know, a couple of weeks before, and you know what I did? I read it five times a day, five times a day before the speech, and I read it that many times so I wouldn't cry when I was giving it. Yeah. You know what I mean? I kept thinking to myself, yeah. the last thing you can do is get up there and cry. You can't get up there and tell the story and, and cry. So the idea of, of, of being in a position to, to have this happen and, mm -hmm. and be able to share it in a way that made it feel so personal. And so, and so prophetic. If you think about it, those kinds of speeches are come along once in your life when you understand that I was, I was destined to give that speech. I've been waiting all my life to give that speech because, you know, when, you know, because as the story goes, there's a lot more to the story, but I'll add one thing to the story. I was a middle child that was always in trouble. I was always raising hell. And, you know, my mom, I would, I would get into fights with my siblings, not fights, fights, but you know what I mean? How they said Ooh. they would, I would do something they didn't like. They chase me and I'd hide behind my mom's coattail or I would run and get on the couches up, wheelbarring my legs up so they couldn't get me. But they didn't like yeah. me. My brothers and sisters, they did not like me. I was a pest. <laughs> you know, it's, it's still, I still, my siblings today feel the same way. But, you know, when you when you are like that, you know, you you become like they're pain in the butt. And a Ooh. lot of times you live long enough where you get over it, you get to be good friends. But at that time, I was just really their pest. And so when, when uh, the tragedy happened, I realized at a young, young age how much nicer people they were than me, how much smarter they were than me, how much more capable they were than me. Because I used to listen to my mom and dad talk and they would talk at night. Sometimes I'd walk by the bedroom and they'd say, 
we hope we can just get Floyd through school. We hope we can just keep him out of jail. You know what I mean? And comments like that. And 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 so whenever the tragedy happened, I asked myself, why wasn't that me? That should have been me because they just they didn't deserve that. They didn't deserve that. So when you grow up, I got a little older, and my mom and dad had a couple more kids, and I was I think I went about eleven or twelve, something like that, maybe a little younger. My mom came to me and she said, you know what? You've got to be the oldest son. You've got to be able to do what's right by your siblings. And I told her, no, I don't want to do that. I don't want to be the leader. You know, my mom said, listen to me. Everything you do, they're going to follow along behind you. Everything, whatever you do, they're going to follow along behind you. I realized one day when I did something, I don't know exactly what it was, but I saw them say they wanted to do the same thing. And it just struck on me. It just did hit me like a lightning bolt. They said, you know what? This whole family is going to need you to lead. We're going to need you to use whatever, whatever you have to help them succeed. And mm-hmm. so I just accepted that. I just accepted that I had to be the one to lead. And that was to me the most prophetic situation. And so the idea of why I, I didn't want to cry is because I knew by reaching that goal, by getting that recognition from that peer group, I had validated my brothers and sisters, I had I had gave meaning to them, because because their story didn't die with them, their story didn't die with them, and what I tried to do is make sure that their story lives on, to make sure that whatever happens, that their names and their legacy in some way will be will live on through me, and so that to me was the main reason why I didn't cry, why I was so resolute and so determined to do that. Yeah. So what were their names? Lynn was my sister. She was the middle child. Of, she was the middle of the, of the three. There's Jimmy, who was the youngest, and Ju- mm-hmm. Junior was the oldest. Now, I do have a sister that was at the water there with them, Inez. And she's the only one who did not go in the water. See what happened, Junior tried to cross first. And when he slipped and started to, you know, get swept away, then, you know, Lynn tried to help him and she fell in too. And then when they were getting, you know, getting washed away, they tried to reach up. And then my sister's only shook her head and said, no, no. And so she watched them actually drown. And that, that to me was one of the worst kinds of, you know, things for you to watch. When you, when you could have drowned yourself, but you, ref, you refused. So, so she ran all the way back to the house, all the way up to the hill. And mm-hmm. then, you know, the, the, the story goes on from there. But, yeah. you know, the idea, Sarah, that you have these beautiful young children who had just begun to live and have had their lives swept away and because they weren't, we weren't wanted. We were absolutely not accepted and not at, at all viewed as being, you know, belonging at that school. When that happened, it was just an automatic relief by all the people there that okay, we we got rid of them. You know, we you know they they didn't belong here. We told them they didn't belong here. Now see what happened to them. That that's what they get. You know. Yeah. Because they were on their way to the integrated school. 
Yeah, yeah. They were, we, our, my family was the first family to integrate the school. To background, your background in Rupert, West Virginia. Where are you from? Yes. And, and if anybody's been to West Virginia, those, those hills and valleys of that flooding, I mean, that's still just a major issue with that of, that is severe and it's going on, you know, still today. That's and then, you know, you don't know when it's going to happen either. I mean, it, it, it rains really hard in one area that you don't even know, but the water rushes yeah. like a gully wash. It just rushes. And when it comes to your area, you know, it, you know, you, you might say, well, it hadn't rained whenever, but the water comes up and what they were supposed to do is they were supposed to have the a guy with the boat who, when you got up that morning, if it rained, you knew in the valley where the buses were that you had to get the boat out. For well, some reason, that the, the, the person with the boat never showed up. And, mm-hmm. you know, that was, it was just like a, the worst scenario happened. Yep. Yeah. What school did, were they going to? It was a Rupert uh, Elementary School. Yeah. So um, when I looked um, more into it, so that Rupert's in Greenbrier County and Greenbrier County was one of the worst after board versus uh, Brown Board of Education. And so then here you have that of like the story that you're telling in the context of it. You know, as I was looking more into it, it's like, no, this was not a, like the opinion of a few. <laughs> this was structurally, like the entire county was like, we're not going to follow, you know, anything having to do with integration. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, we're going to keep it segregated, period. And you know that when that happened, you know, we, that farm we had up on the hill, 50 acres of some of the best timber, maple, cherry, farmland, it was just absolutely amazing. But because of the tragedy of losing their children, my mom and dad couldn't live there anymore. They couldn't live in that house. So they gave up a house that was built after slavery. They left Virginia and they were able to buy 50 acres up there on that hill. And, you know, you talk about cherry trees and spring water that was just fresh out of the mountain. Um, yeah. any any yeah. kind of produce you could think of. But when we moved, do you understand, Sarah, do you understand nobody rented us property? Everywhere we went, we knock on a door, it had a rental sign on it. Nope, mm-hmm. we, we, don't, we don't rent to coloreds. We don't rent to Negroes. Yeah. And finally, one of my dad's, think about it, my dad worked in coal mines. One of his coal mine buddies said, Albert, we think people ought to stay with their own kind. You know, mm-hmm. you know, whites to whites, blacks to blacks. You know, you ought to stay with your own people. And we heard that message over and over again. The only place we could actually go after all that was a place called Pine Ridge, which was actually called Nigger Ridge. And that's where we wound up living. And it was way yeah. another place. Think about it. We were on a hill. So you know, two miles from everybody else. Then we went on a ridge, two miles from anybody else, and you know, yeah. never had indoor plumbing. It never had indoor water. Never had any of those things that all of our friends and 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 kids in the school grew up around. But because we were so isolated and so pushed to the to the extremes, then we grew up in that type of gilded environment, if you will. What's your first memory of that house? Like, when did you move? Because was there, what I'm getting at is like the sense of you had, like as a kid, 
where you're not picking up on everything, but you pick on, oh, it's almost like you pick up more on the nonverbal cues. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, for you to physically, I mean, that's just. Right, well, what happened, the, yeah, what happened is that my dad was crying. And that's the first time I've ever seen my dad cry in my entire life. He was crying and he just said, you know, we're, we're going to bury your your brothers and sister. And I don't know how we're going to do it. My mom, she never said so she never accepted it. She said, I never accepted that they were dead. But everything around the house reminded them of the kids. So they almost yeah. immediately, we, we made it through. It had in February. I think we made it through yeah. that summer and we finally moved sometime in that summer. And yeah. when we moved to this other town, then we went to another school, Smoot, Smoot Elementary School. So we went from Rupert, which was a coal mining town, to Smoot, which was like a little farm town. You know, we had some of the similar experiences of dejection, rejection. I almost, almost had to fight every day, Negro jokes every time. My brother, when we just had a program about three years ago uh, with our old uh, high school coach uh, who came and talked to our, some of the kids who were recruiting to WVU. And my brother got up to introduce it. He said he, he was called Negro so much he thought it was his middle name, you know. And, yeah. you know, I had seven brothers at the time and two sisters. All of us faced our own set of racism and discrimination. And, you know, we, we had to fight our way. Sometimes, you know, literally and sometimes figuratively fight our way through. You know, we would have, I still remember the kid when we moved every day, he'd knock me down and wipe his feet on my coat. And I don't know why. <laughs> I don't, I, to this day, I didn't know why. He would knock me down, wipe his feet on my coat. So I came home one day. My mom told my dad. My dad came in and said, son, you, you, you got to stand up for yourself. You can't let people do this to you. He said, if you come home tomorrow and that kid has wiped his feet on your, your coat, I'm going to whoop you behind. And it's going to be one of the worst whoopers you ever got in your life because you have to learn how to stand up for yourself. I was so scared. I was about to pee in, pee in my pants. You have no idea how scared I was. And so that next day, you know, we, we got off the bus and I first started to run. And then all of a sudden I turned around because I said, oh, I know I'm going to be in trouble. And he came up to me and he raised his fist up like this to hit me. And I caught, I caught him right here in the throat with my fist, hard as I could. He, he fell down <laughs> like he was choking, couldn't get his breath. And I, yeah. and he fell down on the ground and he finally got up and he, he got home. And my, my mom saw it because they could look out the window and see that stuff. And she, she yeah. called his mom and told her, if you don't get your son off of my son. And well, my son said you beat him up and blah, blah, blah. So, yeah. And to make a long story short, you know, we went to separate middle schools. That guy's name was Mullins. We call him Moon Mike Mullins. We actually went to high school together. And we were on the same track team, and we set we set a school record uh, for track. And the thing about it is, because we were in the same grade, in our junior year, we had a school record, and we were getting ready to qualify for the, for the state track meet. I ran in the wrong lane. We got disqualified. <laughs> yeah. So so think about it. We all stayed together, 
at our senior year, our senior year, we we ran in the semifinals the fastest shuttle hurdle heat that's ever ran in the state of West Virginia. Set a state record. You know what happened the next day in the finals? He fell. Mike Mullins fell. And so yeah. we, we got disqualified. And so yeah. two years in a row, we never got yeah. our, our state championship medal and because of uh, one because of me and one because of him. Mm-hmm. But you were friends? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we were friends. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he, be- he became a preacher. And I asked him one time, why did he do that? He said, I'm just a dumb kid. But, you know, it, that, was, that yeah. was a funny experience. Yeah, because the first thing when I heard that speech, the first thing that connected with me is that your entire full you and your entire family is like so dedicated to education. I mean, I was reading about your mom and all that she did, but it's like here, you know, like the greatest tragedy of your family had to do with education, you know, like public education. And then here it is like your entire family is above and beyond dedicated to education. Yeah. Like, I don't even know how many of your siblings are involved with schools. How many of you all have terminal degrees? There's a lot. Yeah. Of, I think. Like, like, for example, six, six of my family members graduated from WVU with grad degrees. You know, my brother with a law degree. And, you know, he's 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 actually a preacher minister now, but he runs hospice in Morgantown. My other brother, mm-hmm. David, he had his master's degree from business uh, school and he is in uh, public administration. He was Stanford's director of their HR. Now he's actually his own entrepreneur. I had my other brother, Kevin, who has a master's degree in political science. He, he works with the um, union, SEIU. He, he's director of some of their programs. And of course, you know, we have my sister, Debbie. She had two degrees from, from grad degree from WVU. And she is uh, like the one, the juvenile court administrator in Lansing, Michigan. My oldest sister had two degrees from WVU. She has a master's in education. She taught school for a while. Uh, there's 11 of us all together that have graduated. It includes my brother's kids. You know, my sister-in-law has three degrees from WVU. My, my brother-in-law, he went to med school at WVU, which is probably one of the more unique things about my family and education is because, you know, like I said, my dad never went to uh, college. He went, got a GED, and did a semester at the community college, a couple of semesters. And and you know, my mom, she went back after and got her associate degree, graduated from Bluefield State College, and you know, became a teaching assistant in in the schools. You know, my dad, he was the one who would always push me. I took a job with with WVU Extension Service with 4H. And I did that for about five years. And I came home one time and my dad said, son, you got to go write that book. What? He said, yeah, you got to go write that book. He called it a dissertation. And so he kept talking about that and he talked it into existence, you know, because he, he was right. You know, I was not, I, I'd reached a level, you know, in West Virginia, you're not going to yeah. get a lot of opportunities to move up, whether you think you are or not. So I, so I left, left the state. And went to, to Pittsburgh, and that's when I started my PhD. But, you know, all of my family, you know, all of my sister's kids, my brother's kids, all my kids, all of us 
are driven by my dad and my mom's voice that education is a key that's going to unlock any door you come up against. It's the only way you're going to be able to get to where you need to be, where you want to be. Yeah, because it's interesting for me of it is like working with TRIA where that's what it was funded on, you know, of like education is the way out of poverty. Education equals opportunity. But sometimes you see that that's not not a one and done thing. Mm -hmm. And then even like what it takes to get an education. And so, yeah, so like for Greenbrier County, for say, they had a big student protest. Kids were worried that they were going to lose their spots on the sports teams. And then a boy supposedly wrote a note you know, to a white girl. And then this created this huge, like they said, a hundred students protested or whatnot. And then it listed that the KKK started forming and getting involved, like with those protests and whatnot. And then it goes on to say that only 4% of all of the students in that county were African-American. So literally in those schools, there may have been five African-American kids in that like entire school. But it was like this whole, the world's going to come to an end because these five students or, or, you know, 10 students even are going to be. That you'd you'd be surprised. You wouldn't be surprised. Think, for example, when you would have uh, Easter. Back in those days, you know, the teacher would bring in Easter uh, baskets for all the kids, you know. Just so happened that, you know, where's my basket? You know what I mean? Or else, if you if you got a basket, it it would be, it wouldn't look anything like the rest of the kids' basket. You know, we would we yeah. would have uh, they would doing uh, you know like a Mother's Day or something. They'd bring in flowers to take home and give to your mom for you know for Mother's mm-hmm. Day. We'd get one that was already broke; it was dead. You know what I mean? You know, you, you, you. Why do you want to stay? Why would you stay in school? <laughs> I mean, seriously. Think about it, though. I told you the story about the, the ring around the rosy, the first day of school. The teacher said, OK, we're going to do uh, something to get to know everybody. Hold hands. And we're going to do ring around the rosy. This is how it goes. And, do you know, Sarah, not one kid would hold my hand. And I just stood there and the teacher finally told one girl, she said, here, grab his hand, hold his hand so we can play. You know, that the girl burst out in tears. I mean, the biggest tears you could ever see. She said, teacher, please, please, please don't make me touch him. She said, why? Mm-hmm. She said, why? She said, because he's dirty. And, mm-hmm. you know, I was, uh, the teacher came up, started rubbing my hand real hard. Said, no, look, look, he's not dirty. He's what we call a Negro. You know, she had explained the whole thing. And still, though, you know, we didn't have one kid wanted to hold my hand. And I was there for three years at that school, three years. And do you know that I didn't have one conversation? I didn't have one time to play or interact with kids in that school for three years. Think about it, for three years. Yeah. I, can't even, I can't even tell you one kid's name other than the one kid that I went, to, went on to uh, high school with because his mom was the one who came in and brought stuff like, the, you know, the booster lady, you know, because I knew him because that was his mom. <laughs> but, you know, not once... The last, think about it, the last of the school year when I was leaving on the third grade, we had mm-hmm. we had pickup softball and they needed somebody else to play. So they let me play. 
And that, to me, I can remember that just like it was yesterday. It was the best time I ever had at that school because I was playing with the other kids. I was playing mm-hmm. and I was doing well. I was really doing well. And to me, that is, you know, the memories that that we had of that school. I'll tell you one other quick story. You know, mm-hmm. I, my mom would, you know, never, we never had money as a kid, never. We Maybe I'd mm-hmm. get a couple of pennies. And we could buy what was, you know, the straws that had the stuff in it that looked like pixie sticks. Yep. And so I, I, I bought like three or four of those. And I was so excited to, to get them. You have no idea how excited I was. And so the teacher kept watching me. We're standing in line to go to get on the bus. And I started moving around. And she said, hold still. You're supposed to hold still. And I, you know, for some reason, I turned around and said something to somebody behind me. Do you know what she did? She came up and grabbed all that candy that I bought. The only time I could ever afford to buy candy, she broke them right, right in front of me, just broke them up. I told you to stand still. And all of it poured out on the floor. I thought to myself as I got older, how cruel can you be? How cruel? Yeah. The poorest the poorest kids in a school doesn't have anything. Yeah. Wasn't hurting anybody. Wasn't yeah. doing anything. And you had to make a scene by coming up there, grabbing that out of my hand. And I told you to hold still, you know? Think about that. Think about that. And, and those are things when I tell people about how cruel life has been for me and my brothers and sisters, you know, they don't they don't have a clue. They don't have one clue about how much pain and how much how much violence, verbal microaggressions. I mean, you know, you mm-hmm. I mean, I could tell you just like, for example, you know, they would come up to me. The teacher said, what do you have? In, what do you have in your lunch today? I know you prepared your mom made some chicken. Did she fried chicken for you all? How do you like chicken, don't you? You know, just things like that. Mm-hmm. You're a little kid of first, second graders there. First, second grader. And they're just badgering you about, you know, what do you eat at home? And I know your mom makes some fried chicken. You know, just things like that, that you, that just, you don't really use it to do anything purposeful, but you try your best not to let it be something that hurts you, you know? Because, you know, you, 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 you know, and you don't ever go home and tell your parents. I never went home and told my parents about all this stuff, you know, but, you know, you realize that that's just the way Then you get on the bus. You know, we had to ride the bus and, you know, they would always every day they'd be telling a nigger joke. Well, what's what's what is uh difference between a uh, grass and a, and a nigger shitting in a park or something like that? You know, it always had to be something that was so nasty and vulgar. And, you know, they would yell it out, you know what I mean? Talk about my mom and dad and say, you know, have you ever seen any any niggers that were, nigger women that were skinny? You know, all nigger women I know are all fat, you know what I mean? And just, you know, just things like that. Your mom fat, you know? Just, you know, stuff yeah. that was just so constant. It was like constant mm-hmm. every day, all day, every exchange you had. And you know the funny thing about it is, I'm telling it now, sir, the funny thing about it is now, is that you see those people who friend you on Facebook, Floyd, how are you doing? I'm so happy to be, be your friend. What have you been doing? You know, and, and of course, you know, I remember them. I remember every bit of it. I remember every bit of it. And some mm-hmm. sometimes, you know, whenever they start saying things, I, I, I cut them off. I said, you know, like, for example, we had a pool in Raynell. Now, that was a city pool. But in order to get in, they made you get a membership. And, and yeah. a membership was always more money than anybody black could afford. And if anybody black right. could afford to get in a pool, then you probably didn't live in, a, in, in, in the town. So every so when we ever went to town, 
you know, with my friends, they'd always go to pool and I'd just be sitting outside looking in. You know what I mean? Nobody, yeah. nobody once said, hey, let him in a pool or whatever. And those kids really believed. The white kids really mm-hmm. believed that I didn't belong in that pool or my family didn't belong mm-hmm. in that pool. But they were friends. Mm-hmm. They said they were friends with you or buddies or whatever, but they would never mm-hmm. let you into that pool. And this is whenever I was older. You know, this was not when I was just, yeah. you know, because in that side of town, in Greenbrier, west side of town, the only place that had a city pool was Raynell. And, you know, yeah. you, even when you were in in high school, you still couldn't, if you're black, you couldn't go yeah. to that pool, you know. Yeah. And so yeah. I don't even know if they let people, black people into this day, you know. Well, yeah, I looked it up. The Greenbrier County is like 96 point something percent white. Yeah. So who knows? But um, so how do you think, though, that that impact? I mean, because that's trauma. I mean, that's you have PTSD, <laughs> you know, of that. No, 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 no. That just made me stronger. That just made me stronger. That made me stronger. Yeah, but I'm. it's like then you go to and they're teaching college kids. Like where college, it's not even just elementary or high school. I mean, college is where you're bringing in, like, this is the first time away from home. The first time they're they're around people they don't know. Like you're teaching students who had never, you know, seen a person of color in authority, you know, of any way. And then you're teaching in an almost white department, primarily a white institution. How did you separate that? It's like, no, tell me what you think about, you know, race and sport and why Blacks can't be quarterbacks. Tell me, please write a paper on it. I mean, you're just inviting. Yeah, yeah, that's right. But, you know, there's a couple of stories real quickly about that. Number one is yeah. that do you realize that why is it that I, um, what changed me? I tell you real fast. I tell you exactly what happened. You know, when I was younger coming up, you know, we had, I played football and mm-hmm. We had a situation my senior year where we had, you know, we integrated, you know, with Crichton, with Raynell, Rupert, and Smoot. We're all in the same school. Well, they had this thing about hazing, hazing. If you were a freshman, what they would do to haze you, they tore off your shirt and they would both grab one leg and one grab the other leg. And there was these pine trees that were growing. They just had, they were kind of medium sized and they would drag you with nothing on but your jock strap through those pine trees and, and tear mm-hmm. your clothes. And so they did it to everybody that they could catch, you know what I mean? And they were just having a good time. It was a part of whatever. And you wouldn't believe what happened. They got to the black kids from up at Leslie. And these kids said, listen here, we can't let y'all do that to us said, our parents would kill us if we come home and somebody tore our clothes. Said, you know, that's, you know, nobody, nobody yeah. tears your clothes if you're a black kid. They just, you, you know, parents don't have it. Said, we'll literally get beat down. If we come home and tell our parents yeah. we let some kid tear our clothes. And so the uh, white kids said, no, we did it to everybody else. We're going to do it to you too. So mm-hmm. they went and started to grab the kids. And trust me, trust me. I was a senior. I was one of the smallest seniors on the team. We had all the linebackers and nose guards and tackles, big, big guys. I stepped right in in between them. I said, listen here, stop it. Leave those kids alone. And you know what the seniors Mm -hmm. did? They came up to me. They're going to beat me up. They're literally going to beat me up. And I looked at them just as firm as I could. I said, now leave those kids alone. And finally, 
They did. And I could not believe that I stood up against all of those kids. Now, this is a story. People will never even get this out. Do you know what I mean, Sarah? This is probably the first time anybody ever heard this story. But all those kids, I'm talking about big, burly, and I'm just a little skinny kid telling them, leave those other black kids alone. Now, I was able to be successful with that situation, but it really ruined our team for that year because, you know, all of a sudden, you know, they were mad at me because I was a senior and I, you know, didn't follow along with the loyalty thing. The Mm -hmm. other black kids were mad because they wanted to know why they were trying to do that to them. And then the mm-hmm. white kids were mad because they they were supposed to do the hazing. You have to, you know, hazing is, you know, fraternities, mm-hmm. sororities. That's that's just a rites of passage. If you don't do it, then you don't belong on the team. So our team, yeah. our team suffered that year. We could have went undefeated, but because of that turmoil, we only won seven games. But what happened was, listen carefully. When I got into college teaching, it was in my second year of teaching. I remember to this day. We had one kid. He was a son. He was a son of the guy that I confronted, that I confronted. And here I was, the big bad teacher, and I didn't even know him from a can of paint because this was kids from all over. You know what I mean? I said, I said, are you a blah, blah, blah? I want to say his name. And do, and do you know, he said, yes, I am. That was my dad. And I said to myself, you know what? I am going to uh, really stick it to this kid. And I saw when the kid got up to walk, guess what? He had spina bifida and he could barely, barely get around. And I looked at that, Sarah, and I thought to myself, how cruel can you be to even think you would want to hurt another a kid because of what the parents did and what happened decades ago? I said, you know, you, you know, I felt the most overwhelming amount of personal shame and guilt. And, you know, that kid went on to be one of the best kids I ever taught. He, his mom made me a batch of cookies. You know where those cookies are? Take a guess what those cookies are. I still have them. I still have them. I still have them. My second year of teaching, I kept them. I kept them because I just felt so incredibly, you know, successful that I was able to have the generation of racism and guilt and pain regarding that situation. I, I met that challenge and I was able to overcome that and go back and make that person somebody who looked up to me, somebody who respected me, somebody who liked me enough. He came by my office every day almost and would talk to me. And we, you know, he got into grad school, graduated, went on to do some great, great things. But, you know, he later, you know, committed suicide. And, you know, mm-hmm. we were just, you know, we we're just, you know, really pro- profoundly sad about that. But but yeah. he wrote yeah. a note about why he did it. He said, you know, he, he just couldn't, you know, he was successful, you know, professionally. He worked for a sporting newspaper and mm-hmm. just a well-loved guy, but he just had a lot of things that he just, you know, could never, you know, overcome. But that's a story that just touched me because I learned that, that you never know what people go through. 
And if you and if mm-hmm. you think it's okay to take something out on somebody else for what somebody what the parents did, then you know yeah. it's it, it just wasn't it just wasn't right. And right. that's one reason why you look at the legacy of slavery. How easy is it for us to try to blame all white people for slavery? You know, mm-hmm. when a lot of them had nothing to do with it, and you know it's not fair to hold them yeah. accountable. However, however, okay. however, however, mm-hmm. <laughs> it is important for them to accept re- responsibility. And that to me is where that whole issue gets, uh, you know, fabricated. Right. You know, you look at it because if you know your great, great, great grandparents had slaves and they, they may have, you know, fathered children by slave women, they might have, hung some slaves and you should be able to acknowledge that and accept mm-hmm. that accept it don't own it don't yeah. own it as guilt but accept it as what you did to become successful because you spent you know 240 years with free labor you know what i mean that built that yeah. built your uh, war chest as a country mm-hmm. and as a group of people all the folks who yeah. like you know my uncles who went to the World War II and came back and didn't even get anything from from the GI Bill. But all the white parents were able to go to college, buy houses with no down payments, with no, you know, uh, interest, mortgage interest rates. And so, but they look around now and they talk about how, well, it's not my fault for slavery. Nobody's saying it's your fault, but you have to hold, you have to be, hold yourself accountable that the the reason why you're so successful is not because you're smarter or you're naturally intelligent or you're a superior race is because of the economic power differences that went on for Mm -hmm. 400 years. Yeah. I mean, a lot of that too is inheritance. So for my family, it's like they inherited land for generations and just like the ability to have something to inherit, like something to pass down. And so, yeah, it's like, what you're like even four generations had, you know, you can link that yep. even back mm-hmm. into like what you've inherited or whatnot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've got about 10 minutes, but I wanted to, what's the link between um, your family's tragedy, if there is one, and the the tragedy that your program has experienced with losing three kids to gun violence? Well, that's a great question. It's also something that's so deep and so incredibly emotional because once you have suffered a loss and from someone like you, you know, you've accepted the loss of your dad, that when you experience that loss, that pain is triggered by every other death. Every other death brings back the same emotions. You cannot minimize it. You know, when we had the kid, I'll tell you real quickly about our kid, Matthew Steffi Ross, who was shot at an Airbnb. Do you know that um, he came into our program in 2015? The judge, magistrate judge, called me, said, I have a young man's uh, aunt on in my office, and she wants her a nephew, great nephew, to get some help because he's getting in with some bad people and he's not doing well in school and he really needs some some help. So when the kid came, uh, we met him 
and his grandmother, she asked a ton of questions. And, you know, I mean, she was really tough questions. She needs to ask, what are you all about? Uh, you know, do y'all have security there? Who's going to help him? You know, on and on and on. Well, to make a long story short, he came to our program and, you know, we had got him squared away. He went around, got a little bit more trouble, got straight, got a little bit more trouble. And finally, uh, you know, about a year and a half ago, he started coming to office regularly. He was a senior at, at a uh, alternative school and we, we uh, hired him. We hired him and, and he started to put up a wall. The ones we lost, he called it. And, you know, I, I saw how he was doing it. And I thought to myself, uh, you know, no big deal. So I, I went away from the wall and I came back about a month later. You realize that wall had about 18 names on it. We, I looked at it and I said to myself, we got to do something. We just have to do something. We cannot have this many kids dying on our watch and not do anything about it. Well, yeah. what happened was he left our office on a Thursday for, and he had brought a kid in to our office to get him into the program. He was out now just recruiting kids. Any kid who knew had was having it rough, he brought him to us and we'd get him in the program. And yeah. so he uh, shook my hand at the end of the day and, and said, you know, Dr. Jones, I thank you so much. You have no idea how much this means to me. And, you know, I really appreciate it. And he carried out the trash. And that was on a Thursday. He was shot. He was shot on that Saturday. And when we found out it was him, nobody could believe it. He said, no, no. All the things he went through, losing his his grandmother and, you know, taking anybody's by his great grandmother and all the things he, all the bad deals he had. And so, but it affected every one of my staff in a way that it's been the most profound loss because none of us can understand why a kid we spent seven years of our time and effort in helping him who and we got him just to the point where he was just beginning to do perfect great and for him to get to, to get killed and that's how that death is uh, you know I listen to uh I try to watch it every time it comes on I don't know if you watch it or not it's the equalizer 2 by Denzel uh, Washington he's in there with the one kid who's a painter and the kid uh gets caught up in a in a gang. And so Denzel comes up to the room where they're making their drugs and come on, Miles, come on. So he gets out of there and then the kid says he's he starts cussing at Denzel, you know, how am I gonna make it? Painting is not whatever, whatever. So Denzel grabs him and tells him, you don't know what death is. You don't know what death is. And he says that two or three times to the kid in the most loud and profound voice. And I think a lot of people, they don't know what death is. You know, death to them is a video game where you kill everybody you can. Death to them is, you know, when you see, you know, war around you or people, you know, that are, uh, you know, you don't know. It's almost like some type of a movie when you see, you know, mass mass shootings and things like that. You don't know them. They're not personal to you. So that's death. Okay, that's death. But until it hits your family, until it hits you. Until it comes close to you, you don't know what death is. You don't. But once you do, it never leaves you. It never goes away from you. It always touches you in those vulnerable places. Like, you know, this is just, I don't know this is a podcast, but I get emotional. And I get very emotional because, you know, 
you understand death the older you get. And you feel very, very sad about death for people who you know they're younger or people that were just at the wrong place at the wrong time. You know what I mean? You you just you just think to yourself, why? Why? How can it happen? And so when when someone that you know dies and it touches you in that vulnerable place and opens you up, you can never turn that off. And it's with you for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what are you, what do you think? Well, I guess it's one of those things where, you know, I mean, I feel so bad saying this, but I'm just bringing it back to like what you learned through your experiences with education and then saying like, so what can we learn about this stuff with gun violence? Cause it's not, I mean, it's even calling it gun violence is, you know, kind of putting a term onto it that it's, um, it's not what it truly is when you have kids dying. Yeah, like how are you going to turn this into a something to motivate you or learn from and not to sit be traumatized? You know, and this is one reason why I, you, you, you have no idea how much I absolutely love you because you are able to continue to have that intellect that is mushroomed in with intent with heart and passion, but also wisdom. You're so wise. You've always been that way. And your questions really reflect a wise, very intellectually profound set of discussion points that that show the breadth and depth of of, uh, what I believe is important for folks to, to realize. And that's the fact that when you think about this, it's, it's hard. It's hard. It's hard to tell a kid who doesn't ever even know what death is to be afraid of death. You know what I mean? But by the same token, Sarah, it's almost impossible to tell a kid not to feel pain. You mm-hmm. can't tell a kid not to feel pain. You can't tell a kid not to be angry. Well, mm-hmm. they shot my cousin. They killed my uncle, a dad. You know what I mean? When you have... I've been become a part of a victim of gun violence. You have very few rules. There are very few rules. There are very few rules. It's like a sport. We're going to go out here and we're going to play this sport and we're going to have a winner. But you know what? The winner has to win by the rules. With gun violence, there are no rules. And so when you get out there and you realize there are no rules, that's why somebody will shoot you in the face because they don't want to, you know, miss. That's why they'll shoot a toddler because, well, you know, shouldn't have been there to start with. That's why they'll shoot your mom or just shoot up a whole room to make sure they get the right Mm -hmm. person, shoot up a car. Because there are no rules. There are no rules that say, wait till we find a person out by themselves and blah, blah, blah. And we'll, you know, confront them and they'll you know, give them a chance to. No, no. Right now, you know, yeah. it's just like there's no rules. And so what we've recognized is that what we've got to do is we've got to go in and we've got to tear up the script. And that's what people don't want to do. Because tearing up the script means what? It means three profound things. Listen carefully, three profound things. Number one, that you 
have to fix whatever you tear up. Well, so you go in and tear it up. That means you erase the good and the bad. You erase the good and the bad. It's not like you would just surgically go in and, and get a slice and say, okay, we're just going to take this part out and put this in. No, you tear it all up. You know why? You know why? Because you make that person live that pain again. You make that person be vulnerable to how to deal with that pain. And that is a real serious situation because a lot of these kids are traumatized. They're in counseling. They're in therapy. They live in fear. They are marginalized in the work environment. They're marginalized at school. They're underrepresented in you know every legal and, and professional area. So you have a lot of people who are just hanging on by a thread. They, they took the good part that was maybe this much and that much bad part, and they were trying to survive. And you, you say, okay, guys, we got to get rid of all this crap, and you got to start over again. Now, the, that's the second part, Sarah. They got to start over again. It's, they have to start from scratch. There's no shortcuts. There's absolutely no shortcuts. And that means that you have to recognize that everybody has their own pace. Everybody has their own buy-in point. Everybody has their own idiosyncrasies, you know. And so when you when you come back in and you got to rebuild people, you know, you have a real task. And that's the longest part. That's the longest part. Getting them to be able to give up their, quote, pseudo power that they think they have and become even more vulnerable. I mean, I've already lost a family member. I've already gotten, you know, money on my hand. I've already gotten all this. Stuff. You want me to become more vulnerable, become more at risk? Yes. Because that's the only way the healing and that process is going to kick in. You have to come at it from that, that direction. Now, the other thing, Sarah, this is the other part. You have to then be in a situation where you have to depend on other people. You know what I mean? And that's the third part that is the toughest part because I people are the one who let me down to start with. You know, people are the one who... who didn't give me an education. I didn't get a chance to play on the team. I didn't get a chance to go to the park because I didn't have money. I didn't have clothes. All the people that I depended on before, they let me down. Look at me. I'm the kid that's, that's you know, isolated out here with nothing. And that's why it's a powerful incentive for me to get a gun so I can, you know, at least have something I can protect me by. So that idea of becoming more vulnerable and putting putting in that work means one thing. There's no guarantees of success. And that to me is the scariest part that if you know, you got to start over from scratch and it's going to be a lot of work. A lot of people don't want to put in the work because they know that there's a darn good chance that I'm going to fail, that I'm not going to make it in their mind, in their mind, which is, which is the other part. And this is the final part of it. And this, this is like a smaller, what I call a smaller, uh, strategy, but I think for our purpose, it'll, it might work. So the final piece is you got to get them out of the environment that they're in. You, you cannot break the cycle when kids live, live the cycle every day. You cannot break the cycle when kids live the cycle every day. You've got to put yourself in a situation where you can remove them from that environment, either by college going out of state, out of the country, 
you know, doing something to get them to see with fresh eyes. And that's the part that we talk about. That the, the other part, the reason why you get them away is not because you want them just to, you know, you know, relax and refresh. No, you want them to begin to look at things with fresh eyes. And that, that fresh eyes is a real significant, uh, you know, uh, <clears throat> strategy. Because once you're able to see what, how they do it here, how they, some are optimistic, some of them who didn't have the same thing you didn't have, how they become successful. I didn't have a parent either. I grew up in the same neighborhood as you, but look where I am. So the more they can get those fresh eyes that come from what? From the peer influence. The fresh eyes come from the peer influence that they're in, and that allows them to, in many cases, begin to get the, 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 the building blocks. That, the, if when you build something, you can make it sturdy by the fresh eyes that gives you what. And this is always, Sarah, in my mind, what always saves the day. And that's all those intangibles, those intangibles, the things you don't see, things you can only feel, things you can only guess, things you can only <laughs> interpret. And that's what you have. That's what you have, you know, being the first generation kid, recognizing that you are doing this because you're trying to make your dad proud still to this day. You're trying to do the things that your dad never had a chance to do, what he always wanted you to be able to do. And you're able to do that. Nobody wrote the rules. Nobody told you how to do it. You just know you have to do it. And that's why with, with yeah. me, all of the, the racism, discrimination, the pain and hurt that I went through, it didn't matter. It didn't matter because I knew that I had three dead siblings who would give anything to experience that, who would have given anything to just be a part of that, just be a part of that. And for me to complain and to, to, to give up and to feel sorry for myself and blame somebody, hell no, hell no. You know what I mean? My goal for them, but then living for my brothers and sisters who were younger than me, coming along behind me, who I know that they will be in my shoes one day. If I don't prepare them, if I let them see me fail, if I let them see me get weak and, and, and let those things bother me to the point that I give up or I lash out or I you know, create a whole another series of mayhem with, with guns or whatever, think about that. What, how many of them would I ruin because of that? Do you know what I mean? So that to me is the point that, that, you know, that I reached that yeah. I knew that no matter what happened, I had to do it for those that I lost, but I also had to do it for those that were still alive. Mm -hmm. And no matter how much of that trauma and that pain and that discrimination, that racism I had to face, I had to take, I would do it all over again in, in yeah. order to be the man I am today to build yeah. a bridge for the folks to walk across being able to see it from all different perspectives for you, which is good. You wiped me out. That was good. I want to leave it on. <laughs> uh, no, that was good. Well, that was good. good. Powerful. Well, thank you. Well, TRIO Student Support Services Program and Student Support Services STEM are federally funded college retention and completion programs. These programs focus on academic, 
personal, and career support for under-resourced undergraduate students. At Trio SSS and SSS STEM, our goal is helping our students reach their goals. We are currently accepting new students to our program. Apply today. Go to www.ncsu.edu to learn more about student support services at NC State.